Welcome to day five of the Australian Open on no challenges remaining. And day six, too, we're going to consolidate <laughs> the third round into one show. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. How are you doing, Courtney? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Once again, it's post-midnight. It is. <laughs> we're not ahead of schedule on these things very often. <laughs> uh, but today, we actually are a little ahead of schedule, actually, today, because we're going to bring you uh, a very cool interview to wrap up the show. Very quickly, let's go over what happened on day five. Not much. I think a couple night sessions, which we had flagged as being uh, potentially interesting or, you know, get, uh, draw changers in a bit, we're not. Especially, I know you, Courtney, you've talked a lot about uh, young, young Russian lady watch, as we say, on the Periscope a couple times. Uh, Daria Kashikina, first, a lot, you know, leading the pack in some ways on yeah, that front. Sure. I uh, played Serena Williams today. It lasted 44 minutes. It was a 44-minute clinic. Um, you know, she earned some money out of it, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, it was nice. actually, I mean, it was it was what it was. I mean, it is what you would expect um, from a Serena Williams who is firing on all cylinders when she is playing an 18-year-old who has never been in this situation before, who is uh, underpowered uh, as it is. You know, I mean, she's working on her game, but uh, Daria Kazakina, a bit more of a clay quarter than a hard quarter, generally speaking, when Junior French Open. And you really saw that against Serena, just uh, too much loop on the ball. Ball just sat up, and Serena was just crushing it, no depth. Um, probably needed to, to develop a bit of a flatter game, uh, Daria Kazakina. But yeah. uh, she was great um, afterwards, and uh, if you want, we can include audio. Uh, sure. She called, uh, she called Serena Williams a hurricane, uh, which was very kind of cute and adorable. Um, and just said, look, you know, I know how good she is, but uh, that was something else. Here's Daria. I know she's, she's really the best. She, she's, <laughs> she doesn't give me even chance to play how I play, so it, it was just a great experience to play against her. Really. Did she surprise you by how good she was tonight? No, <laughs> because... For sure, I know she is very good player, but today she was like hurricane. <laughs> yeah. um, and you said that it was a good experience. Why was it a good experience for you? Uh, because she showed me how I <laughs> what I have to do on the court. <laughs> so it's, I have to work like animal. Another Daria won, Gavrilova. I guess was the only, and, and Gasparian one, so Serena will play another a Russian and Gasparian next, and Gavrilova got through to the second week, which has been pretty cool here, and I think especially to get to the next match, with Nick Kyrgios bowing out. Um, I Did think, he really bow out? Uh, you know, he, he, he whined his way out. <laughs> music was playing. He heard the music playing playing him off before we even did. Um, yeah, that, Nick Kyrgios went down in you know, not super mature fashion. It wasn't awful no, in terms of being ratty. On the Nick Kyrgios scale, it was fine. Yeah, it was, it was probably a four on the Kyrgios scale. Yeah. Uh, yeah a 62 uh, on the Federer scale. Pretty much. Whatever. So Kyrgios loses to Burditch. Not a big deal. Dimitrov loses uh, Federer in four, although it didn't. It wasn't like a close four, no. really. Uh, it was a never in doubter. Djokovic got through Sepian straights. I mean, yeah, every, everything kind of went to schedule pretty much today, except for the rain. So there was a rain delay on the outer courts. There are three roofed courts here at the Australian Open, which is pretty incredible, by far the most of any tournament. I guess that's not an indoor tournament. I feel dumb even saying that. But, <laughs> but three retractable roofs. However, matches between like 
uh, Gasparian and Putin Seba today were delayed by the rain. And if you were watching the streams of any of those matches or any medical timeout that's happened at the Australian Open or any sort of chair umpire fracas that's happened at the Australian Open in a women's match or, and men's, odds are, and it's just other times in your life, odds are that you have seen our guest, Donna Kelso. Donna Kelso! You were saying today, Courtney, that she knows how to hold a walkie-talkie really well, as you would hope, because that's kind of her job. She knows how to rock. Uh, walkie-talkie. Ain't nobody rock a walkie-talkie like uh, Donna Kelso. How do you rock a walkie-talkie? Just the, just with such confidence. Okay. You know, I mean, she has this thing of, like, if you've seen Donna Kelso, you will have known, uh, particularly um, one of the more famous incidents, Serena Williams, uh, getting a point penalty and a, basically losing the match. It wasn't a default. People think that she was defaulted At from that match. At the 2009 U.S. Open. Yeah, uh, against Kim Kleisters with the famous racket, uh, racket uh, brandishing yeah. Yeah. throat threatening all this stuff with yeah, you, uh, might, you might remember Donna Kelso from past hits as, I yeah. didn't say I would kill you yeah exactly so uh, so Donna Kelso uh, is a WTA supervisor uh, by day uh, during the rest of the year but at the IT she also works night sessions she also works night sessions occasionally but uh, yes at the Grand Slams she is also serving here as a tournament supervisor um, and she's great she's been in the business uh, for an incredibly long time and she's a nifty lady. And she's an Aussie, and she uh, chaired several Aussie, Aussie Open finals yes. uh, on the women's Clever side. Umpire. And one of my favorite things that you'll learn, and that I learned in this interview with Donna Kelso, is that she got into tennis by winning a coloring contest, which meant that like she colored within the lines the best, I guess, which is kind of appropriate for someone who loves rules, loves lines, and would prefer for everybody to stay within them. And colors. She, I've heard. Oh, her fashion sense is remarkable. Donna, yeah, that's that's Victoria. She is a, is a chair empire uh, aficionado, as many of you on the internet know, and tennis internet at least know. Tennis internet is kind of weird. <laughs> um, not that Victoria is weird, or maybe if she is, it's in good ways. Uh, yeah, Donna is always colorfully dressed. Apparently, brings an incredible number of shoes to each tournament. She does, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we don't talk about that, but let that inform your perspective as you create visuals about this. Walkie-talkie rockin' lady. Yeah, she's an awesome, badass lady. So let's hear from Donna Kelso. And that'll be it from us on this. She's going to play us out. So see you guys later. Kangaroo, I guess. Bye. We are very excited. Sorry, let me start. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm so flustered, I can't even speak. We're very excited to be joined by Donna Kelso on this segment of the show. Donna, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure, thanks. So, Donna, we see you on TV, I guess, when things are going on, on on. When something's happening on court, something unexpected or something that needs your... Addressing. Addressing. How, I yeah. guess, how would you explain what, just in larger terms, what your job entails? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the role of a, a WTA supervisor is basically to oversee um, everything that happens on site. So um, part of our role is in the lead-up to the tournament, in um, liaising with the tournament and other departments of the WTA, so that when we get on site, everything's pretty much running smoothly. Then when we get on site, we're uh, essentially the liaison between the WTA tour, the players and the tournament. So, you know, dealing with anything that, that crops up and um, helping everything run smoothly. So what sort of stuff does crop up? Um, well, 
if it's a, a fairly, well, in a standard week, we've got qualifying sign-in, followed by making the draw, then we make the schedule, and then we make the main draw, and then we do the order of play for every day. We get the matches going on. We liaise with broadcast, make sure um, you know everything's going on. So that that's your standard week. Yeah. But um, you know, obviously, uh, I say it's like dealing with a, a human jigsaw puzzle yeah. in uh, trying to make all the pieces fit and. Um, trying to, to keep everybody happy at the same time. Um, you know, obviously things that can crop up are, um, you know, weather issues where mm. we have to make changes to the schedule, rearrange matches, um, cancel matches. Um, it's a, a fact of life that uh, we have to deal with withdrawals mm-hmm. from players. Um, sadly, that's that's one of the things that we have to, to oversee and oftentimes communicate to uh, the tournament director. Um, and we're also liaising with the officials. Um, if something happens on, on court, then it's the referee or the supervisor who typically goes on court, whether it's a, a medical timeout or a, um, a stoppage due to rain or... Um, answering a, a question of law pertaining to the rules. Yeah. So lots of different things <laughs> that can happen. Yeah, I mean, like, your days are long, uh, you know, for when, when you're on site. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, uh, well, let's back up a little bit. And, and how did you become a supervisor? You were a chair empire for a very long time. So, so and how did, you, how did you even start as a chair empire? Let's go right yeah, to the beginning okay. of your tennis so origin really story. Start from the if, beginning. If, yeah, exactly. If our <laughs> listeners want to be the next Donna Kelso, oh, this God. is the blueprint right here. <laughs> well, um, I won a colouring in competition when I was eight years old. <laughs> no, seriously. And the prize was a tennis racket. No, okay. So, That's an awesome story. Yeah, yeah, so from that, I started taking tennis lessons. I ended up going to a tennis school that was owned and run by Bill Gilmore, who was a well, former great Australian player in his day, and then a supervisor on the men's tour and at the Grand Slams. So uh, his tennis school was quite well known in Sydney for recruiting um, ball kids and officials. Mm. I tried out to be a ball girl, didn't happen, so I uh, went to a line umpire training session when I was 16, and a couple of weeks later, thrown out onto the court, calling lines, and and just loved it. I was doing that in my school holidays. Following year, started doing some chairs, uh, working at, you know, local tournaments, junior tournaments in and around Sydney, and uh, yeah, just kind of got hooked. Um, When I went to tennis lessons... When it got rained off, rather than cancelling the lesson, we'd all sit in the shed and, and learn the rules of tennis, which was, yeah, that's, that's it's, awesome. It's coming pretty handy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. So then when, so you became a chair umpire. Became and you a chair were, umpire. And you were one of the best chair umpires. I mean, you did a lot of Grand Slam finals in Australia. Thank you. You were kind I of a big deal, darling. Kind of a big deal. I know. Big deal. We have a lot of hardcore tennis fan listeners who would know, like, <laughs> They they would know they, would they know their chair final empires. That you shared oh, okay. yeah. yeah. So, so, what, so what was so, that? What was that like? Let's just start with uh, that. Like, what was yeah, it like? It was pretty, pretty cool. So my, well, my first um, overseas tournament as a chair umpire was Wimbledon at the age of twenty. Wow, um, that's young. Yeah, so that was you know back in the days before we had emails and you had to write a letter to the to the chief umpire or the tournament director or whatever. Um, so yeah, I uh, that was amazing. That that's probably where it all started yeah. with the the passion to. Uh, get more involved in officiating and I used to be a travel agent so I loved travel mm-hmm. obviously um, so this is the perfect way to bring the two together um, I was fortunate enough to be um, asked 
to join the ITF team of elite chair umpires when there were only two female gold badges at the time. Okay. So I worked with them for, for three years. And um, who as were a the, two, the two that were gold badges at the time? It was myself and uh, Jane Harvey. Jane Harvey, that's right, okay. Um, yeah. And prior to Jane was Fran McDowell yep. from the yeah, US, yeah, you yeah. may well remember. Very much so. Uh, so when Fran announced her retirement, there was a, a spot open in the team and I remember getting asked during the US Open to come in to see uh, Ken Farrar, who at the time was the, the head of... Uh, supervisors at the Grand Slams and um, I thought I'd done something wrong anyway he called me in in and uh, offered me the position so I then became you know the the second girl in the team um, which was was amazing so working all the Grand Slams Fed Cups Davis Cups um, my first ever Davis Cup which was pretty awesome was um between US and France, oh, which wow. is pretty... That's high profile, big, yeah. yeah a big pretty one. high profile at the time. <laughs> uh, happened to be in um, St. Pete in Florida. Yep. So um, when we had a little bit of free time, I popped into the WTA to say hi to a couple of people I knew there. And then um, in addition to working the slams and tournaments for the ITF, um, I worked a lot of WTA tournaments and ATP tournaments yeah. independently. Because um, you're kind of an independent contractor sometimes as a yeah, chair so and Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. last year when um, Ava, uh, when the news came out that Ava was moving from uh, WTA to ITF, everybody, Azraki, sorry, more, yeah. um, uh, everybody was like, oh no, we're not going to see her at WTA, like fans. We're like, we're not going to ah. see her at WTA events anymore, things like that. That's not necessarily true. No, absolutely the way that, not. Yeah, so no, explain so, that a little bit. Like you yeah. can kind of... Yeah, there are basically, you know, the, the three groups, the ITF, the ATP, the WTA, each have their own group of umpires, chair umpires yeah. who are, are contracted to primarily work for that group. But, you know, we're all officials. We're all under the one right. umbrella, pretty much. Um, yeah. So one of the um, Grand Slam officiating team can work an ATP or a WTA event as a chair umpire. Right. WTA chair umpires... Will work Grand Slams as will ATP Tour of Chair Umpires. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so don't, we'll don't worry, everybody. Chill out. <laughs> no, we'll see Eva's Eva's, not going yeah. anywhere. I don't know what her schedule is right, yeah, um, in terms of working WTA events. Obviously, she'll have quite a full schedule with all the four Slams, right. Fed Cup, Davis Cup, sure. Olympics, and yeah. Olympics, yeah. Um, and the uh, the the ITF or Grand Slam um, officiating team are also heavily involved in training and education. So oh, okay. they they teach it schools around the world gotcha. as well, you uh, bringing on other yeah. officials. You mentioned Eva Azdaraki, and she just made some history as the first woman to officiate a men's singles US Open final last fall. I'm just curious, when you were starting out on tour, being one of the, one of the only two women gold badges, how, how was that seen in terms of women officiating men's matches? Was that normal, or was there still some sort of uh, last ceilings or whatever term you want to use to break through there for, for women calling men's matches? Yeah, there, there were still, uh, back then... Um, glass ceilings, as you as you correctly put it. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I had the opportunity to umpire a number of um, uh, Davis Cups. Right. Um, at the Slams back then, you know, maybe up to second round, third round, um, ATP Tour events. You know, early rounds, maybe a, a quarter or a semi final. Just um, because you were a woman, essentially, even though you were a gold badge. I don't know if I can say that or not. <laughs> <laughs> Fair uh, enough. <laughs> but um, then in, in recent years, um, the trend has been to give female officials more opportunities to officiate men's matches, uh, which is phenomenal because it shouldn't be 
gender-based, my personal opinion. Sure. Um, And again, there have been uh, female referees, myself included, who have had the opportunity to referee Davis Cup ties. So, uh, and again, that was pretty cool, refereeing my first Davis Cup tie. Similarly, a number of years ago, um, the role of Grand Slam supervisor was uh, initiated whereby two of the WTA supervisors at each Grand Slam work with the Grand Slam officiating team and we're then, we're still technically working for the WTA, but we're also what we call a Grand Slam supervisor, so... At the slams, you may well see myself or Pam or Lara, uh, Lara yeah. uh, Melanie coming on to court for men's matches right. to, to yeah. make you know rules decisions or speak to players, officials. So after doing all of your Grand Slam finals and being up in the chair for so long and presiding over everything, how did you decide that you wanted to switch to being a sort of more roving position of, of being a supervisor? And how does that step happen? Um, I was I was actually uh, approached. Um, by Jean uh, from WTA, who is my current boss now, but yeah. way back when, uh, asking me if I would be interested in potentially becoming a WTA supervisor. Um, and at the time, I was thinking, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in that, but thinking, you know, maybe two, three, five years down the track, uh, because my goal back then, uh, late 90s, was to work at the Sydney Olympics, being mm. oh, right. Sydney. Yeah. Um, and one of my highlights as a chair umpire was umpiring the gold medal match at the Atlanta Olympics, oh, awesome. which yeah. is pretty cool. cool. Um, so, yeah, Sydney Olympics was, was one of my goals. Um, so the timing was, oh, my God, if I become a supervisor, then I probably won't get to work at Sydney Olympics. But, um, yeah, the stars aligned. I started uh, – the, the job became available. Um, coincidentally, Pam Whitecross – Left the WTA to take a job with uh, the Sydney Olympics, oh, okay. and I took Pam's job. She was working, um, basically running the tennis event for the Sydney Olympics, and I got in uh, as an assistant referee. And then Pam, who okay. you well know, yeah. yep. <laughs> um, then came back to the WTA uh, shortly after the Sydney Olympics. So yeah, that's very cool. So let's just go to more of your job. I guess what what it will be in Melbourne. I guess when you when you get when, when, how are you sort of monitoring? What's going on? Let's say, especially early rounds or qualifying when there's 15, 20 matches going on at a time. Yeah, do you Where, have like a command do you, control? Do you have like I a, mean, you know, you, whatever, whatever the, yeah, the, the situation room is or something? <laughs> or, or, or do you just try to stay moving around, checking in on things? Or how does, how does that work? Um, you I obviously think, have your walkie-talkie. Yeah, we have yeah. our walkie-talkie, yeah. two phones. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at the Grand Slams, in the role of Grand Slam supervisor, um, the supervisors at the Slams work um, in conjunction with the, the tournament referee. Okay. So um, there are typically six supervisors working with the, the referee. He obviously can't be the eyes and ears on all of those many courts, as you mentioned. So uh, at the slams, we're out and about by the courts a lot more mm. covering those matches. Um, you'll see pretty much any time there's a match on centre court or one of the high-profile courts, there'll be a Grand Slam supervisor sitting courtside yeah. because those matches are so high-profile and lots of international coverage. Um, if something happens, there's somebody there to, to respond straight away. Um, when we've got qualifying matches going on or um, early round matches on the outside courts, we're, as you said, you know, roaming, roaming yeah. around the ground, yeah. watching, um, sometimes doing evaluations on the officials in the chair, um, 
just you know, basically seeing what the players do what they do best out on court. Yeah. I, I often say at a WTA tournament where our role is more um, operations, um, you know, a managerial role, we're sort of 95% in the office right. and then occasionally have to come out on court or hopefully not. Um, normally for the finals, we're sitting courtside. Yet at the Grand Slams, we're pretty much 95% out by the courts and then just, you know, pop into the office if we need to. Uh, touch base. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. speaking speaking of that, I mean, you're talking about uh, you know supervisors being courtside on the main courts. Um, how conscious are you of the fact that you are going to be seen? That that you know, like if you go out on court, it's like you know, people if something who possibly are controversial might be starting. Yeah, or just whatever it is. Like, I mean, is that does that temper? anything at all in, in terms um, of... a little bit I mean we you know when you, you sit there you're watching and even after you know this is my 19th year as a supervisor um, I sometimes still watch the match as though I was sitting in the chair <laughs> um, so you you're conscious of, of the way the match is flowing one of the probably most important role um, parts of our role is obviously knowing the rules um, and being able to enforce them when the time comes. So it all comes down to communication, consistency and common sense. Uh, So a lot of, uh, you know, what we may need to do is sort of, you know, hidden in the the depths of our brain and then you pull it out when you need to is the best way really of describing it. So so sitting courtside, you know, you're taking in a lot of things and you're – you know, maybe following other things that, that happen on the radio, on the walkie-talkie. If we need to go on court, then obviously you, your primary focus is on what you need to do. Right. And who you need to communicate with, the decision you need to make, and then how you yeah you, you follow on with that. When you get called out to a court, maybe an outer court, you get radioed, something's happening, and maybe you didn't see, maybe you weren't courtside and didn't see whatever incident it was or mm-hmm. a controversial ruling or whatever, how do you, when you get there, how do you fig- figure out what happened? How do you put on your detective hat? State and, of play. And, and, yeah, or, the... and and then and then I guess do you come out ready to air more on the chair empire side or the player side? Do you come in with a preset sort of opinion, or, or how does that all work when you when you show up? Yeah, when we come blank. when we're called to a court that we haven't seen what has happened, our first point of contact is always the chair empire. And basically, you're on a fact-finding mission. Yeah. So depending on yeah. on what the chair empire is telling you. Um, you're asking the the pertinent questions to be able to find out what has happened. You may need to ask uh, a player a question, but basically collecting the facts and then processing that and making a decision and then communicating that decision based on you know if it's a rule. Um, a lot of the times we're out on court with the uh, um, PHCPs or physios, trainers um, to oversee what's happening there so that they can focus on what they need to do and we can take care of the communication between the chair umpire and the opponent and yeah. if something you know unforeseen happens to to then you know act yeah. accordingly it's funny you should bring that up because that was one of the questions that i had uh, sometimes we see the supervisor out for the medical timeout sometimes medical timeouts happening and there's no supervisor is there a, a rhyme or reason or is there like a when just if someone's available or well we is there somebody on there <laughs> all the time they pretty much should be maybe i still see them but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um in or well, on the WTA tour, especially, um, there is always going to be a referee or a supervisor oh, okay. 
coming out with with the PHCP to, manage, yeah. to oversee, but again, um, you know, again, mainly to allow the, the the physio to focus on what they need to do because they've only got a limited amount of time right. to assess what the nature of the injury or illness is, and then a three minute treatment time. Right. Yeah. So if we can take the any onus off them in terms of you know, treat, communicate care of everything else. Yeah. yeah. yeah there, there are times when I guess on the medical timeout front when people and fans or other players think that there might be gamesmanship going on and that someone might be using the medical timeout tactically or not for a specific acute injury, I guess, in whatever way. Is that something that you have to evaluate, that you're looking to evaluate or confirm the, the legitimacy of an injury when, when these things happen? And, and if so, hypothetically, is there anything you could do to stop a medical timeout that seemed bogus? That's uh, a decision that's taken solely by our medical team. Okay. Obviously, we've got a, a highly experienced, highly professional team of, of primary healthcare providers right. who you know have gone uh, undergone extensive training in their they probably area know of specialty. Um, so they uh, they assess the the injury or the illness and make decisions based on that. We have we as supervisors or referees or chair umpires have um, you know, no input into right. the assessment. It's based medically. Does that happen often where they come to, they assess and decide nothing's wrong? I wouldn't say that uh, they're saying nothing's wrong, but depending on, and again, I've you know got zero you know medical background. Right. Um, maybe sometimes in their assessment, nothing can be done within that three minutes to... Mm get them back out playing healthy right. and I'm not the one to really answer those kind of questions yeah. because that's why we've we've got these medical experts um, in the in the roles that they have. Yeah. Um, so typically I mean you were talking about before in terms of your job, you know, you're dealing with, you know, rain delays, you're dealing with all of these kind of curveballs going through, you know, broadcast uh, issues, order of plays, uh, scheduling, all these sorts of things. I presume a lot of that is um, you can kind of see it coming a little bit. Obviously, you get you know meteorologists or you know reports that oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. Okay, we should probably be teed up just in case, and you're somewhat prepared going into the day about with for certain things. There's probably a small percentage of things though that are just going to come out of left field. Yeah, totally oh, unexpected. Not, uh, and, and is that mostly just the power like, outages, things like that? Yeah, that yeah. touch wood. That's not happened at one of my events. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, the you know expect or the unexpected. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I always say our theme song should be um, "Anything Can Happen." <laughs> yeah. That's probably right. But like, so, so at this point, nineteen years on, do you no longer have kind of? Because I put myself in your shoes, and I would just be an anxious wreck all the time because I would be so worried, like that something was going to come out of right field or left field, and I, I was just going to have to jet off or something. Like that you always seem calm and composed. Uh, oh, thank a, you. No, you really do. I never. I'm like that's amazing because I I deal with so much lo- lower stakes things, and I'm anxious. But um, at this point, are you just kind of like I've seen it all, and I know I can handle. Uh, you know, whatever comes our way, or you just you just got a great poker face. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think a lot of it's um, you know learning from experience and and always being open to to learning more and and growing and embracing change. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is is being prepared in terms of knowing the rules, knowing the um, environment you're going into. Um, 
obviously one of the the great things about our job is the people that yeah. we work with and being able to build up awesome relationships with um, you, know, you know with tournament staff tournament directors players coaches physios um, broadcast staff communication staff you know people who do different jobs yet live a similar lifestyle right. in traveling from one tournament to the another. The circus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the traveling circus. That's right. So, um, you know, knowing who to go to when a particular decision needs to be made um, and having mutual respect with the people that we're working with, including with the players. So, yeah. again, assessing the situation and based on, on, you know, what you know, just making the decision and communicating that decision, I think, is very, very important. Right. You, knowing who to yeah. tell and you know what to tell and the timing of when to tell them and the managing. You, yeah, you mentioned you know learning from experience when some some incident does happen on tour. I guess either tour and some extreme thing where there's like a player shouting at an umpire or like someone gets defaulted for some reason or something. Do you all go back and study? that incident and sort of does it become a, a teaching moment when something yeah, we out of the ordinary do does and a lot happen. of the uh, a lot of the officiating schools even back when you know I, I did mine um, was capturing um, video content of situations that may have happened on court and then learning learning from that right. um, so it is used as a tool to teaching officials but also um, you know assessing what the decision um you know, yeah. that was made at the time, um, if that was the, the correct decision, if something could have been done differently or better, um, and, yeah, using it as a, as a teaching tool yeah. uh, for ourselves and for the future generations of officials. In, in your experience, do players generally have a pretty good understanding of the rules in, in terms of some of the minutiae of them? And if not, I guess, what are some of the more misunderstood rules in general? You know, ge generally they do. Um, and I think that's also part of our role as, as supervisors and also uh, maybe to a lesser extent, you know, chair umpires out on court, is to educate players. Yeah. So when there are rule changes or if there are things that crop up, um, you know, we can revert back to the rule book. Um, if we need to, but it's um, yeah, it's it's all part of the education process. Yeah. I mean, you're you, obviously your WTA supervisor, and then you have your roles that the majors. So obviously, majors are conducted under ITF rules. For the most part, there's a lot of overlap between the tour rules and the and the major rules. There are a few kind of key distinctions that sometimes you know casual viewers of tennis don't realize that they're different governing like that slams are not WTA tournaments, even though the personnel all look the same and. Things like that. So, like, I, I just know that at the majors, things happen and uh, fans will be like, oh, but the rule is this. And you're like, well, no, but that's a tour rule. That's not the ITF rule. So I'm wondering, like, for you, when you make that transition, what are kind of the key rules that you keep in mind to be to kind of switch over? Like, okay, ITF tournament. Uh, I know, like... Logo you know, sizes are... Lo <laughs> 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 oh, the logo yeah. sizes. Oh, yeah. The pages and pages on logo sizes. Um, yeah, but, you know, things like that. Like, yeah, look, signage, logo sizes. Um, I know time between... Like, the time between points, points is a different one at the ITF yeah. level than the tour level. But what are the key ones that you always have to be like, okay, I'm... They're about the, 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 the main ones, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and again... 
pre-Grand Slam, we'll have a meeting with the supervisors, referee and chair umpires and go over you know, any rule changes from last year to this year, mm. pre-Australian Open, yeah. uh, and then again at each of the slams. And uh, there's, there's continuing um, communication within the officiating world um, with, you know, Q&A scenarios and, you know, things that happen, um, you know, what the decision was that was made at the time and, um, you know, if it's a situation that's maybe never happened before or a mm. very rare situation, then, you know, that will be communicated through our, you know, various um, right. means as to, you know, why that decision was made and then, you know, if it happens again, this is what you should do. One rule which I think people want to have interpreted or I've heard debates about is the hindrance rule in relation to grunting. Which I guess is maybe more has been sometimes considered people right is oh they they don't like grunting they say oh this should be illegal it should be banned whatever in your experience <clears throat> all of that have you ever come across any incidents where that might be the case or is that could that ever be the case where that rule is applied to try to crack down on that? Uh, I mean obviously it's been uh, under discussion for for many 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 years yeah um, with uh, you know certain individual players um, being you know discussed more than others um in terms of hindrance it's it's you know if the opponent is being hindered and it's very rare that we've seen you know anything actually transpire on court right not few not many players kind of raise it as saying like that's an issue um but uh, for just the supervisor so from when you started obviously tennis has changed a lot in the last couple of decades oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh within specifically your role as a supervisor and obviously your interaction with umpires as well and just everything what what has been the biggest change i suppose um from when you first became a supervisor to now like the, the yeah, hawkeye, technology hawkeye. technology yeah. uh hawkeye yes but also um behind the scenes the way we uh how quickly information gets communicated we, yeah things. transmit information with live scoring um and you know when we do the order of play it's now all you know in a software program whereas when i first started we were handwriting drawers and handwriting <laughs> schedules and you know putting them into fax back a lot of people probably don't even know what <laughs> fax back is, but um, yeah, that that's been the biggest change. Yeah, for for me is uh, is IT technology and yeah, live scoring now. You know, the chair umpire hits Boom. a button and the whole world knows yeah. who won that point, basically. Yeah. Um, and then you know, distributing information at the end of the day when the schedule comes out. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny because for, for us, from the media side, if you go back a decade or two decades ago, tennis, especially because it's so international and you're dealing with so many time zones and deadlines and things, you were more, you know, there obviously wasn't this hunger for immediate, like, who won that match? You you, you opened up the paper the next day, that's you right. read what happened, and that's how you got the results, and, and that's how you, so, um, you know, even for me, being slightly younger, like, I feel like um, I'm sometimes surprised by the thirst that fans have for getting information right away, like a draw happens, and the number of emails or tweets or anything that I get of like, why isn't this draw up? You're like, dude, it was just finished like five oh, minutes ago. Like, no, you know, I've like, got to finish the draw, yeah. get back to the site, open up my laptop, input it, and then I can send it out and check it and make sure everything's yeah, correct. Because that Whereas surprises somebody... you sometimes, like you know what I mean. In terms bit. of like, like, oh my god, like people kind of want it. back. Yeah. You know, when I first started. Nobody cared about this stuff. The draw was, you know, people got to it when they got to it. You might now, only get like, the final on TV. I mean, different things. Yeah. Have, yeah. I mean, I yeah. think it's great. I think oh, yeah. it's, you know, 
that's obviously uh, you know you opened up exposure to the world of tennis. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and social media as well has you know contributed to the accessibility of you know scores and data and um, you know the, the technical side, but also a little bit you know player personalities. Mm, yeah, um, which I think can only help. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you have to be conscious of the gambling side of things? Not really. Um, no. I don't, <laughs> to be honest, I yeah, I, uh, that's not something I I think about consciously. Okay. Yeah. So Obviously, that... you know, it's there. Um, the you know, tennis integrity um, has evolved because of a need for it, but um, it's no, it's nothing I. Yeah. think of in, in you know day-to-day okay. work life. Yeah. So last thing we'll get you out of here on this, what is your favorite part about your job? Your job seems pretty cool. It's very cool. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm traveling 22 to 25 weeks a year probably, um, which I still love. Jumping on a plane, that's when I sleep and, yeah. and chill. <laughs> that's how I feel. I know, I, I love it. Get peace and quiet on yeah, a plane. You can't. Yeah. Love it. Email doesn't work. I can sleep. I can watch TV. I can zone out for the 16 hours it took me to get here. You know, that's right. That's my time for me. Yeah. Um, and then for me, going uh, back to a lot of my favorite tournaments where you've got the continuity and you've got the friends and the relationships that you've built up over many years um, and hopefully making a difference, um, you know, in terms of. As I said before, educating the players and watching them grow and mm. and flourish, and you know some of the girls having come onto the tour as juniors now, you know having won Grand Slams years later. That's right, and you know hopefully contributing a little bit to um, you know to their um, you know not to their success, but to helping them um, you know make their their work life yeah, on site the, a little bit uh, the barriers easier. Make that's right. And then also working very closely with tournaments as well. Um, so sharing ideas and best practices from, you know, a tournament we see on the other side of the globe, mm-hmm. something that works really well for them operationally or with their fans and then sharing that information with other tournaments. Nice. Um, so they're, they're the benefits and the people, definitely yeah. the people. Well, thank you very much. You're one of the things that makes t- tournaments great around the world, we would think. Thank as well, you. yes, it's absolutely, fun. it's fun. No, it's it's team effort. We all uh, we all work together, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. But there's you know, if, if anything, like what we we want to do is just try and remind fans. There's a lot of people that you don't see yeah. all the time. That a lot of parts of the machine that keep going that you don't that see. That shape oh, the sport. In that's a very, right. Very tangible way, and you're definitely one of them, Donna. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks indeed. for having me. No sure. Problem.